of the fact that though we were so depraved, yet God loved us when we were still sinners and gave himself for us. And, and on all of that theological foundation, Paul then begins to teach the Romans in chapter 12 through chapter 15 about how does that look when the rubber meets the road? How does life come together for people who have been justified by faith? Now remember, for the early church, it was a way different ballgame than what we experience today. The early church lived under the Roman authority. There was slavery in the early church, or when the early church was uh, coming together. It was a very transitional time. And so people coming together to worship in the Christian church in the first century might be a slave, might be a slave owner, might be a Roman centurion, might be a soldier. All of these people from these very diverse backgrounds and different perspectives. They might have been a Gentile. They might have been a Jew, ethnically. Religiously, they might have come out of very pagan religious experience, or they might have come out of the monotheistic religion of Judaism. And yet they're all being thrust together because of their one common belief, and that is that Jesus died for their sins. And in addition to that, the way in which the early church worshipped was quite different than how we worship today. We come together at 9.30 on Sunday mornings uh, till 10.30, maybe a little bit later. There's a few that will stay after for the intercessory prayer ministry, but usually we're done in about an hour. So we come together on Sunday mornings. Some of you gather together throughout the week with uh, small groups um, some of you perhaps don't. But for the early church, when they came together on Sunday, it, typically speaking, it was for the bulk of the day. They would be together. They would hold what they called love feasts, where they would eat together. And then they would take uh, and break bread together, take the communion together. And then there would be times of teaching. So it was a, really a day-long experience. And so they came together from these very diverse backgrounds. They were thrust together for uh, this one day where there was a lot of intense relational things that would occur. And as you might expect, there were problems that, that existed within that environment. And Paul is addressing here in chapter 14 one of those problems that is co people coming from very diverse religious backgrounds specifically and because of that, how do they interact with one another because of these? So it's just important to remember the context that Paul is writing to. But the principle and the application really for us today, even though we don't spend the entire Sunday worshiping together, we do share our lives together, don't we? We come together on Sunday morning, but I know many of you, as I said, come together in small groups and in many respects share your lives together at various points throughout the week. So our lives are knit together as Christians in a very real and profound way. And so we too have to apply these principles that we will learn here in chapter 14. Even though... 
uh, our experience probably is, is quite different. The principles, I think, do remain the same. It says in verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So that sort of sets the stage here for what we're talking about. Paul is saying that we are not to quarrel over disputable matters. That is to say, issues that are very clearly not specifically connected to the gospel message. Paul talks about that in in Colossians chapter 2. He talks about the fact that the fullness of the Godhead is found bodily in Christ Jesus. All of the things that we read about in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of them all. And so there are a lot of issues that we look at in the Old Testament that the Jews would experience from their their history that really did not relate to salvation. Because salvation was very specifically, we've gone through that in Romans, very specifically tied up by faith in Jesus Christ. Has nothing to do with works. Has nothing to do with any kind of observance of a religious system. It's simply faith in Jesus Christ. So there are going to be issues that are disputable. Issues perhaps that the Bible is not specific on. Or issues that, while they may or may not be beneficial, really don't have a direct connection to our salvation in Christ Jesus. So, there, as Steve pointed out with the King's Kids, are going to be two categories of people that are spoken of here in chapter 14. Those whose faith is weak and those whose faith is strong. And how do they get along? Well, we are to accept the one whose faith is weak. In other words, there are not to be preconditions to our love or acceptance of one another as we come together. Jesus Christ accepted each one of us unconditionally. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus accepted us in that condition. And so we too ought to accept one another just as we are. People don't have to clean themselves up to come to church. If, as I hope and pray for, we have a, a revival within our body and within the community and people start coming into church, get, getting saved, turning from darkness to light, you know what's going to happen? These pews will be filled with a bunch of people who think and behave differently than we do. How are we going to deal with that? How will we receive them? Because they won't have a full understanding of the Bible, an understanding of, of what they are, how they are to behave within the Christian church. Is there a way they're to behave in the Christian church? The message, the, the formula is right here in verse 1. Accept them without quarreling over disputable matters. Just receive them unconditionally because that's how Christ received us. And if we are to reach our world, church, if we are to connect with the lost and have them begin to become a part of the body of Christ and a part of the experience of Christianity, we need to go in with that notion that we are ready to receive people unconditionally just as they are. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. 
But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So one of the issues in the church there in Rome was that they had a a marketplace where they would sell meat. And the meat, much of it that was sold, had been previously sacrificed to idols at one of the idol temples. But then they would have all of this meat. After they sacrifice the animal, what do they do with it? Well, they take it to the marketplace. And oftentimes, the meat that was sold that had been sacrificed to idols was much less expensive than other meat. So people oftentimes bought it. Well, for the Jewish person coming into the Christian church, the Jewish person would look at that and say, offensive to me. I cannot eat meat that is sacrificed unto an idol. That offends my conscience. Paul says that we are not to judge the person who feels that way. The Gentiles had no problem with buying that meat. It was cheaper, it was less expensive, and they had no uh, experience that would have told them it was improper to eat. So, So one of the issues was eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul deals with the same issue with the Corinthians. He says, now, food sacri- now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. And Paul goes on in chapter 8 there to talk about the fact that food sacrifice to idols is not, eating food sacrifice to idols is not a sin unless it violates your conscience to do so. And it's the same issue. So he's saying, you know, some of you in the congregation have knowledge. You understand that eating meat sacrificed to idols makes you none the worse, none the better. It's just meat. But knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so Paul is saying, rather than eat the meat sacrificed to an idol and cause your brother to stumble who is observing you eating this meat sacrifice to an idol, it's better or it's more loving to forego eating that meat so that you don't stumble your brother whose conscience is offended. So that's the concept, again, Paul is dealing with here in, in Romans. And in verse 4 he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. So here is one of the key issues is in, in discerning, uh, dealing with issues that are disputable. Is a person behaving in this fashion? Is this person eating meat? This person not eating meat? As worship unto God. Because ultimately it's unto their own master that they will stand or fall. So if they're not eating meat because they are doing it as worship unto the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus is their basis for not eating meat, then Jesus is able to make them stand in that position. Likewise, if the person is eating meat, saying, I have freedom in Christ because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, I am no longer subject to the law. I understand that Jesus there, and I think it was Mark chapter 7, basically declared all food uh, clean. 
He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the heart of a man that defiles him. So again, the issue here is lordship. We're not to be judging one another if they are serving in a fashion that is an attempt to please their Lord. Second issue that was uh, occurring there in the Roman church, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So here's the deal. As we come together in the body of Christ, of course, we don't have an idol temple outside of Gunnison that people are sacrificing cows to. So we don't have this issue of meat sacrificed to idols in our midst. But we still sometimes occasionally cross this issue of one day being more holy than the next, observing certain days as holy days. For the Jew, the Sabbath was sacrosanct. It was very, very holy, very, very important. And so for them, worshiping on Saturday was what they were used to. It was what they uh, had developed as a holy ritual in their lives. But again, for the Gentiles... The Sabbath really didn't mean that much. For the Gentile worshiper, every day was the same. So they had came together, and again, there was this tension that existed. We're supposed to worship on Saturday, because that's what God said in the Old Testament. Well, why do we have to worship on Saturday? Isn't every day the same? Shouldn't we worship God on every day that we live? Why reserve it to just the seventh day? And so there's this tension, and Paul says... Whatever you're doing, whether it's worshiping on the seventh day or worshiping every day, whether you're not eating meat, whether you're eating meat, whatever the issue is, do it as unto God. Make sure that your conscience is so aligned with God that you are doing those actions as unto the Lord. Now, understand that in this debate, the strong, really, the people who were strong in faith were the people who could eat meat. The people who worshipped every day and did not feel a compulsion to worship on a particular day. They were the strong ones because their faith was based on the work of Christ, the fulfillment of Christ. The weak in this equation were the ones who said, I can't eat meat. It's been sacrificed to idol. I have to worship on Saturday because that's what the Sabbath is. And yet, Paul is making a point here that, that really, if the person is doing it as unto God in worship of their Lord, the Lord is able to make them stand. And it is the Lord, ultimately, who they are focused on. So if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Now, that's not to say that in the church, the people over here who lack knowledge about the fullness of Christ and what he's done, shouldn't try to grow in the Lord and educate themselves about the work of Christ and all that he has done for them. Likewise, 
the person over here who is strong in their faith, in that strength, needs to understand, as Steve demonstrated with the King's kids, that it's not about being right, necessarily. But it's about being loving. And taking that person who's weak and not doing anything to stumble them or to offend them. Now, in the church, as I said, we don't really deal with those issues so much today, but we deal with very similar issues in the church. And I've seen it in my 33 years as a Christian. I've seen it in a lot of different churches where people come together and and, and we're almost automatically in judgment mode. Well, they don't parent the right way. They have problems with their kids because they don't parent according to this particular parenting model. Or, well, I'll give you an example. This is an old example, but it's a good one. And sometimes it still comes up in the church today. This is actually from the Victorian age. There were two Victorian preachers, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, both well-known preachers in London. Powerful preachers, had powerful ministries. And at one time, they were friends. In fact, they had exchanged pulpits at one time. Spurgeon spoke from Parker's pulpit, and Parker spoke from Spurgeon's pulpit. But they began a feud because Spurgeon smoked stogies. And Parker didn't think he ought to smoke stogies. And one time in the London press, Parker asked the question, how much, do you, how much does Spurgeon really smoke? Do we know? And Spurgeon actually responded to that. He said he smokes one stogie at a time. (laughs) Spurgeon's issue with Parker was that Parker attended the theater. And Spurgeon said that Christians ought not to attend the theater. That was a sinful thing to do. And so this feud became literally a blood feud. The men would not speak to one another because of Spurgeon's smoking and because of Parker's theater attendance. And what had once been a very powerful and aligned fellowship between the two of them severed. And that happens in the church today, doesn't it? Over issues that really are disputable. We quarrel over issues that really don't have anything to do with salvation. But they're just not the way we are comfortable with what we would prefer. That's really what it deals with, is preferences. I don't like praise choruses. I want to sing hymns only. I don't like hymns. I want to sing praise choruses only. Women should wear dresses. Men should wear ties. Uh, there, was, there was another preacher uh, who, who <laughs> had, a, had a very specific listing of when the women's stockings achieved the point of sin. I mean, we can really get ridiculous with this. The point is acceptance of one another. Living with one another in love. Because ultimately, you know what? You're not going to stand before a judgment seat where I review your life's work. You're not going to stand before a judgment seat where anybody here or anybody out there reviews your life's work. It says in verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister or why do you treat them with contempt? 
For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is a notion for me personally that has brought me to my knees more times than I can count. Both in my own personal life, but also in my life of the body of Christ, where I have come to that point where I recognize, whoa, I'm judging that person. I am putting myself in the position of Christ. I'm not loving them any longer. I'm judging them. You know, Jesus said that we are to deal with the beam that is in our own eye first before we concern ourselves with the speck that's in our brother's eye. And isn't that really the truth? Isn't that so often the truth? When we're judging someone else, you've heard, all all of you I'm sure heard, how many fingers do we have pointing back at ourselves? Three. We have one pointing towards the other person and three back at ourselves. We are to deal with our own beams, church, first. You know, and as we come together, imagine, imagine an, an environment where people come together and are loving and accepting and receiving. Not that we all have it perfect, not that we all are, are, are where we should be, but where we just accept one another because of the love of God. Churches have split, denominations have split over minuscule issues in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you you think what I'm saying is ridiculous, but it's not. It's not because churches split over these very concepts and they go separate, separate ways because they can't live together with people who don't follow their own preferences. That's why we have so many Christian denominations and churches. You know, in the early church, in the first century, in Gunnison, there would have been one Christian church that would have gathered together. Yeah, they would have had some breakout into homes and stuff, but there would have been one Christian church. That's not how it works anymore in America. If you don't like what's going on at this church, there's a church down the street you can go to. Instead of loving one another, agreeing to disagree agreeably. Now, again, there are issues that are worth taking a stance on, making sure that we don't just allow those things uh, to, to rise up within our midst uh, and uh, defile many. You know, there are behaviors that are absolutely sinful. There are certainly doctrines that are essential to being a Christian and to the Christian salvation message. We can't dilute those. But at the same time, we can live together. It says in in Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And it's true. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer there in John chapter 17, prayed that the church would be one, that the body would be one, would come together in unity just as he and the Father were one. 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in the, your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So that's how Jesus starts out this prayer. Very much about him and the Father and the unity they have. Then he prays for the believers. He says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for all who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what do you think was on Jesus' heart there in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying to the Father? And he's praying for his disciples. He's praying not only for them, but all who will believe through them. What is on the heart of Jesus Christ right there in John 17? It's unity, isn't it? It's his people coming together in love for one another, in acceptance of one another, in a unity that resembles the very unity that the Son has with the Father and the Father has with the Son. So that's what Paul is dealing with here in in Romans 14. There are issues too numerous to mention that can divide us. But there is a powerful reason for us to stay together. Paul says in verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of whether or not you smoke stogies or whether or not you go to the theater. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. Paul says the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Righteousness. We've all been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Peace. He is our peace who has broken down every wall. Joy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have fullness of joy in me. So righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, it's all about Jesus Christ. That's what we keep ourselves, our eyes focused on, is Jesus Christ. Not, does she do it this way, does he do it that way? But we keep our eyes focused, church, on Jesus Christ, who is righteousness, peace, and joy. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned to faith because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So when we violate our conscience, when we're over here in this camp and we worship on the seventh day and we don't eat meat, if we violate our conscience and we see someone else over here eating meat, worshiping whenever they want to, and doing so in such a fashion that they really don't show themselves to care about me, I am liable to stumble. My conscience is liable to be offended. And you say, well, I'm over here. I've got knowledge. How come I have to be constrained by that person over there? Why does that person's preferences and morals have to impact me? Because I have knowledge, and my knowledge is correct. Well, let me give you one possible explanation for how you might want to think about that. It's in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll conclude with this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any compassion, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each one of you to the interests of others. So here Paul is talking about his his desire that the people be united by the same love in one spirit and one mind, not acting out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, considering others as better than themselves. But, but that's Paul's words. Then he says, and this is the kicker, that we are to have in our minds the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, so not, he wasn't just in this camp. He was there. He was in very nature God. Yet he did not consider, and he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when, you humble, when you're over here and you've got the position of faith and knowledge and, and you humble yourself and say, I'm going to come alongside and do whatever I can to support you, whatever I can to strengthen you. Yeah, sometimes I'll have to leave my position of knowledge, my position of faith, but I'm going to do it because love is my motivator. Just as it was with Jesus. You know, ultimately what happens when you leave this camp and you come over here and you take a hold of that person and you humble yourself, that person is going to be much more amenable to learning, isn't he or she? Much more amenable to changing those notions that have them over here. And so that's, that's why we follow Jesus, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And likewise, that's what we ought to do as we come together, is to remember love is the driving force. You can be right, but you can be right in the wrong way. Heavenly Father, 
This is tough stuff. All of us have a responsibility in this equation. Those who have faith and are strong have the obligation to love and to do whatever they can to help those who are not in that same position of strength and faith. Those who are in a position of weakness and, and a sensitive conscience, they have a responsibility to grow into the fullness of what the gospel provides for them. But we all have a responsibility, Father, to follow the example of your son, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself and became one of us, died on a cross to show us that love is the way. And so I pray for strength for this church, Lord, strength of faith, strength of love as we come together Sunday by Sunday, day by day, whatever our circumstances are, Lord, I pray that this church would be a place where people from whatever circumstance, whatever background, whatever situation of sin, they can come to this place and know that they will be loved. Know that they will be received and accepted. Empower us by your spirit to do this, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's stand up. We're going to conclude with the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.